Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. When we have a fear response, it's a legitimate physiological response, but you can choose whether that fear becomes strength or you can do what I was doing, which was try and numb it out. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. Super stoked to have you. 100,000 things vying for your attention and here you are listening to this. Wickedly cool. I appreciate that. Also, I wanted to tell you about my new book that's coming out. It's not out until March. I mean, if it was up to me, it'd be out right now, but the publisher has their little process to put it through. The book is called Staring Down the Wolf, and it is about emotionally mature leadership. I've got some uh, unbelievable stories in there that you probably haven't heard about different spec ops SEAL leaders, really who've stared down their wolf of fear and have brought it in a big way. And so I use those as exemplars. And then I also track some of my own path as a leader, uh, particularly through my failures. So it's probably the most vulnerable book that I've written to date. And it's really interesting. So, you know, look for that. You can pre-order it now at amazon.com. Of course, that helps us out because we want this to be a huge success. And uh, look for more information on it. And uh, also I'll be podcasting the chapter. So I've already released the first three. And so look for the rest to be out before the book is published so you can get a preview. Thanks very much for that. Hoo-ya. All right. Today's guest is also someone who's passionate about fear. And he's got a book out called Fear as Fuel. It's Patrick Sweeney. He is the fear guru. He's an Olympic level rower. I mean, I was a rower in college and I know how brutal that sport can be. And to be an Olympic level rower is quite impressive uh, to me anyways. And he's learned through his trials and tribulations how to use fear as fuel, like the title of his book, to power elite performance. And he's been studying it from neurobiological perspective and a hacking perspective and a performance perspective now for the last probably five to eight years. So Patrick, thanks so much for joining me today. Super stoked to meet you and to have this conversation. Uh, Commander Devine, I really appreciate you and, and your audience having me on board today. I've been a big fan of the podcast and, and your philosophy for a long time. So I'm, I'm thrilled yeah. to be on here. Yeah, appreciate you doing it. And um, we got a lot in common. I mean, you were a college, college rower and then, you know, made it all the Olympic trials. I actually did a test, initial test at a regional level. And uh, my technique was so poor that the coach basically laughed me out of Cornell <laughs> when I did it. <laughs> I had the fitness down, but the other part, you know, I'd only rode for a year. But so anyways, uh, that's an little side. Give us a little bit of your, you know, like early childhood stuff. Like who, who were you? Where are you from? What were your early influences? Tell us about the rowing and then we'll, you know, move on from there. I, I'm, uh, I'm happy to. I'm not too far from where I was born. Uh, blue collar neighborhood in Boston, kind of the, the rough and tumble 
Irish immigrant and Italian immigrant suburbs. So my dad was working three jobs and uh, my mom was a bank teller and no one went to college. So it was a, it was a big deal. And, and when I got into college, you know, years later, after we moved around a lot, it was, uh, you know, my parents basically said, well, now you've, you've got it made, get a job making 25 grand, find a wife and, and, you know, you're good. Your life's good. Yeah, you're, you're well done. And, uh, and that wasn't, uh, it wasn't to be that way. But, you know, especially as we were talking about the focus of your new book, and some of the stuff I've learned through the neuroscience, I had my original fear frontier, my, my big seed planting of terror when I was about six years old, saw a plane crash at Logan Airport on TV. Really? Oh, and that dramatically shaped my life for 35 years. So that's, uh, that, that's that. You so know, it I, was it was a live reporting of a plane crash, or it was it was you oh know my. Channel Seven News. Uh, that they we were sitting there. I was laying on this green shag carpet. We were living in a duplex. My my grandparents owned the the upstairs and downstairs, and we were living in the downstairs. And my brother and I were playing with the GI Joe dolls or action figures, mm-hmm. as they should be properly called. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my mom and dad sat down on to you know flick on the black and white TV, and and they saw this immediately. This guy screaming at the top of his lungs about a a uh, instrument approach going terribly wrong, and this Delta DC nine slamming into the seawall at Logan Airport. And oh my! And when that happened, you know that as I found out later from the neuroscience perspective, two things happened to me. I created a semantic memory, what's called on on one side of the brain, which is just the facts, Delta, DC-9. And then I attached my own emotional interpretation into it. And that's the emotional memory. And those get paired together. And if you never do anything to change those, you know, we, we call it now PTSD, but the neuroscience behind it. And that planted a seed of terror inside me that lasted till I was 35 years old. Right. And influenced just, not just how you traveled, right? You, you probably were terrified to get on a plane, but what else did it what other decisions did it influence? Well, you know, and that, that's the amazing thing, Mark, is, is you never really realize the hidden fears that sprout out. I, I work right. now with a lot of CEOs and stuff, and I always say, we're going to work this weekend on finding your hidden fears. And they say, well, we don't have any hidden fears. Right, of course. Well, <laughs> that's because they're hidden. They don't know about it. <laughs> At which point, right, you have to say, hey, genius. That's why they're called hidden fears. So uh, I, I was, you know, I had no self-esteem and, and I, I tried to, really put myself in this cocoon of first athletic performance. And, and I mean, I was afraid of asking girls out. I was afraid to apply to good schools. I, everything growing up, I was bullied all the time. And I, I just had all these fears and I, I never knew why. And first I tried to overcome them with athletics and, and you know, won a national championship in rowing at the, at the club level and, mm-hmm. uh, and then got the tryout with the national team, won a bunch of national championships and in, in uh, you know, team boats, singles, doubles, quads, eights, that sort of thing. And, you know, it still didn't do it. And it took a really rare form of leukemia and me dying to, to basically come around to realize, you know, that's no way to live in fear like that. Mm. Okay. So you just threw out a lot there. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> wow. When did, um, let, let's, okay, so we got to hit up the leukemia thing. When did that happen to you and how long, what, you know, how, how big of a chunk of your life did you, did you battle that and you made a full recovery, it seems like? 
Yeah, so it was, uh, I mean, the story of it, it's a long story. I touched some of it on, on the book, but, you know, if you could imagine someone who is initially terrified, like I, I was afraid of everything. And I had, it was after the Olympics, after business school, after I started one company um, that is, is now, you know, a multi-billion dollar company, had I kept, you know, had I been courageous enough to, to steer it through a tough time I'd be running now. And so you're saying at that point, fear caused you to step out of the company before. No, uh, I mean, if, so should have maybe. Yeah, if, Mark, if you don't mind, I'm I'm going to step back and and tell you what I learned through all that. And the basic the basics of it is we make decisions two ways in our life, and and every decision you make can get distilled down to either fear or opportunity. And if yeah. you're making decisions out of fear, which I was doing constantly it almost always leads to regret. If you make decisions out of opportunity, it's always going to lead to growth and success and happiness and fulfillment. But I I was too terrified. You know, I had this great company, raised tons of money, the best employees, but I was always afraid a customer was going to go to a competitor, an employee was going to start their own gig. I'd spend two weeks prepping for board meetings. So I put the best impression forward to the board instead of you know, like you just said about your book, instead of being really vulnerable, telling them where I was struggling, where I needed help, you know, I, mm-hmm. I was just terrified that some, you know, the foot was always going to fall, and I because of that, I was never present, and mm-hmm. so that caused me to make so many fear-based decisions that it, you know le- led to this regret. Mm-hmm. Man, I've been there <laughs> many mm-hmm. times, believe it or not, and, and so nobody's immune to you know, fear and fear-based decisions. I think that's why it's a constant process is what you're saying to really uncover it and, and to attack them, right? Well, and, and, and you have to attack them and you have to learn how to use it as fuel or else what happens when, when the amygdala, when the part of our brain that, that handles our fear response, the limbic brain, it's called, uh, the amygdala is mm-hmm. a, a small gland at the base of your brain that's shaped like an almond. Mm-hmm. When that tries to hijack your thinking process, you make single level knee jerk reactions. So, and, and the purpose of that decision you're making then is just to pass your genes on to the next generation. So as soon as the amygdala hijacks, it's producing this fear cocktail and this is adrenaline and it's DHEA and it's cortisol. And so because I was always in fear, I had this low level cortisol just constantly eating away at me like, like corrosion, just eating away at iron. And I, I firmly believe that's what caused the the leukemia I got. Really, absolutely. So you think it was psychosomatic, like you brought it on with your own? No, no. I think I think it was. I think when we have a fear response, it's a it's a legitimate physiological response. But you can choose whether that is whether that fear becomes strength, and you can optimize your performance, like a you know Tom Brady at the Super Bowl or Ronaldo in the World Cup. And you can channel that and use it for great things or like, you know, I'm sure uh, team guys learn to do from the operational perspective, mm-hmm. or you can do what I was doing, which was try and numb it out. So I, I was mm-hmm. drinking seven or eight cocktails every night. I'd go mm-hmm. home, uh, I'd get four hours of teeth grinding sleep. I'd feel guilty about it because of that whole Irish Catholic upbringing. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I'd have to wake What's up that? before, hit the gym. And, you know, try and sweat out what I did the night before. And so this, this constant cycle is what was killing me. 
Yeah, I see that. And so it's not wrong to say it's psychosomatic. It's your, your, your physical structure was being impacted by your psychology in a negative way, which kept you in a perpetual state of imbalance so that the neurochemicals and, you know, your hormones were all out of whack. You were in me- basically in a metabolic syndrome, which then over time caused leukemia or it would have caused something else to appear. But that was like your, you know, your symptomatic disease. It's exactly right. So I was in this constant oxidative stress and, and, you know, pushing myself and fearful. And because of that, you know, my T cells started attacking each other and went rogue. Mm -hmm. And I I woke up one morning, my arm was, was killing me at at the gym. I remember going into Gold's gym in Ashburn, Virginia. And, you know, the boys are like, Hey, what's up, swing dog. I said, look, it's normal morning, just clanging and banging, going to do lats got down in front of the lap pull down machine and just felt like I torn a muscle. And I I Mm. thought, boy, that's really bizarre. So hopped on the cardio machine and then, you know, the whole cycle started again. Next morning, I could barely move my arm. And Mm. like so many people in fear, I said, I should go to the doctor, but I didn't because I was petrified, right? I was Mm -hmm. too scared to hear what he was going to say. And then the, the third day I uh, woke up and the thing looked like a Christmas stocking and it was big and red and angry. And the docs in Reston Hospital said, you know, looks like a staph infection. We'll give you some antibiotics and the nurse will call you back this afternoon with the results of your blood test. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the nurse nurse didn't call me back. The doctor did. Mm. That, that was one phone call that changed my life. And they had no idea what was going on. So they said, we're going to send you up to Johns Hopkins to the, the best doctors in the world. And 24 hours later, I'm in a white sterile room in Hopkins. My wife's at the end of the bed and uh, she had this, you know, ghostly white pallor of a cadaver and, and just sitting there in tears the whole time. She was six months pregnant and oh, our my. daughter was a year old at home with her grandparents. And, <laughs> and so if that's not fucked up enough, uh, when, when that happened, my COO, who uh, I went to grad school with, send her an email saying, things don't look so good. I've got another opportunity. I'm resigning. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> when it rains, it pours. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that makes sense to me because we externally create what's going on internally. So you were basically creating in your company, in the culture, in the energy, the same conditions, the same cancerous conditions that were, were happening inside your body. That's exactly right. And, and it's amazing. You know, one of the things I'm so excited about in this, the, all this neuroscience research I've been doing the fa- past five years is all this insight into our brain is brand new because we, we're just now getting the technology and these discoveries. And, and so now I can go back and look at stuff and realize just what you're saying, you know, this caused A, B, and C. And if I had just known that, you know, I could have done these five things to, to fix yeah, it. Yeah. So that's yeah, I, might, I might say it's brand new to Western medicine, but it's been well known to, you know, ancient yogis and, and Tibetan Buddhists for a very, very long time. Dude, I 100% agree with you. I think we've got the ability now to prove things with science that, that weren't provable before. Right, right. Weren't provable objectively. But yeah. they were provable yeah. through large numbers of subjective experimentation over many centuries. So that's, that's fascinating. Great. So the did you have to do like um, chemotherapy and radiation? How do they heal? How do you heal leukemia? 
Yeah, so it was it was uh, entirely uh, uh, chemotherapy based, and and I went home for you know when I finally got out of it, it looked like my white cells were coming back. When I got out of Hopkins, they sent me home with an IV in my arm and orders that no one uh, you know no one could come near the house that uh, you know that wasn't our family, and mm-hmm. I sat at home with a with a drip in my arm for uh, six or eight weeks, I think, before yeah. I could get back to work. Wow. Yeah. So it was, but it was, did they, did they give you any stress management techniques that like say here, t- do this thing called box breathing? You know, we, we heard about this, uh, or, you know, no. start, start to do some mindfulness. You need to get your body back into balance. Was there any of that discussion? Oh, dude, you'll, you'll love this story because this is, you know, so this, this was 16 years ago now that this okay. happened a while ago. and yeah. they sent me home with this drug and they said, they said, whatever you do, don't eat grapefruit. And <laughs> You know, I, I kind of gave him the whiskey tango foxtrot, and, right. uh, and and he said, "Well, the the grapefruit will cause the drug to be ineffective." And I said, "Well, if if grapefruit causes it to be ineffective, what can I eat that would replace the drug that would be equally powerful?" And <laughs> the doctor, this is Hopkins, like number one hospital in the world. The doctor said, "I don't know. They don't teach us that at medical school." <laughs> so that, oh, oh, not to mention sleep, right? Yeah. Sleep, stress management, no, nothing, right. nothing like that. So I okay. started looking uh, hard into diet because at the Olympic Training Center, we had the Olympic Training Center when I was there, 93, 94, 95, 96, it was sponsored by M&M Mars. So we had fucking Snickers <laughs> bars. Dude, I, I shit you not. We had fucking, we had bowls of Snickers bars. Now I'm eating 6,000 oh, calories MG. a day, so I was in heaven, Right. But if right. I knew then what I know now about my my diet, I would have been I would have been you know aghast. Wow! So I found a book in 2003 that was called the Maker's Diet, mm-hmm. and I started following this thing. It was a guy who had celiac disease or Crohn's disease or, or or something similar, and he went back to the Old Testament and just started eating everything they ate in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so I followed that diet and saw a huge change in my body makeup and in, in my mental acuity and everything else. And that led me to, to be what I would call one of the early adopters of a ketogenic diet for a performance perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, that's the, I, I've been following a ketogenic diet, you know, I would say for 15 years now in a periodic sense. So I don't do mm-hmm. it full time. I only do it in you know, cycles throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you ready to experience eternity? Well, you've heard me talk about Neurohacker Collective. I'm a big fan of this company, uh, so much so that I invested money and I'm an advisor and most importantly, a consumer. The first product, Qualia, is their nootropic. I love Qualia. I've been using it every day. So I'm especially excited now that they've released their second product, this is groundbreaking. It's called Eternus. Don't you love their names? I mean, Qualia, Eternus, awesome. Can't beat that. They've spent several years with the leading longevity experts, and they've come up with a formula of 38 ingredients that combat aging at the cellular level, regulating NAD+, ATP, and those things that promote better sleep, recovery, and counter the negative effects of inflammation and stress those things that lead to aging. I felt the impact in days. I had more energy and a better mood and a spring in my step. Neurohacker's offering a 50% discount or 50% off your first month if you order by subscription, which you can cancel anytime. 
and 15% more off if you use the code UNBEATABLE at checkout. The link is here in this podcast, the show notes, or go to neurohacker.com. That's neurohacker.com. And again, use that code UNBEATABLE at checkout. And you can thank me in 50 years when we do 300 burpees together. Hoo-yah. Okay, so you had a recovery and you said this was a watershed moment for you and, you know, helped you learn how to tame your fear. But what, what caused you to recognize that this incident with leukemia was self-inflicted wound? So I, I think the fact that, so when I was in Hopkins, my greatest fear since I was a little kid was always flying. So I was terrified, mm-hmm. missed out on, you know, exchange programs, spring breaks, visiting relatives because mm-hmm. they wouldn't get on a plane. And the, you know, when I found out I could race the World Cup, uh, that should have been one of the happiest days in my life. And instead, it was one of the most terrifying because it meant mm-hmm. I'd have to fly to Europe. So when I was in Hopkins, I sat there and, and really the only thing I could think about was my one-year-old daughter. And I didn't want her memory of her father to be the guy who was too much of a wimp to get on a plane and take her to Disney World. So mm-hmm. I committed at that point, I made the choice and, and the neuroscience behind this is fascinating because anybody can do it. I made the choice that I was going to overcome that fear of flying. Even if, mm-hmm. you know, even if it killed me, I was going to go get my private pilot's license. Mm-hmm. So I went to Leesburg airport and started taking flying lessons as soon as I got cleared to leave the house. And I got to tell you, I mean, the first, first couple of times, I, I, I think there was at least once or twice where I might've pooped myself. But, <laughs> but That's after Virgin that, on TMI. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're, you're likely to get more of that. <laughs> but the, the amazing thing is, though, Mark, I fell in love with flight. Right. Okay. So, so six or seven lessons in, this was the most amazing thing in the world. So I got my private license, got my instrument rating, went on, got my commercial rating. And now I compete in acrobatics. And, oh, and, cool. it, and if you can imagine rocketing towards the earth, pulling five G's, uh, you know, with your butt puckered up like a starfish, that, that would have just, the thought of that would have terrified me 15 years ago. And now it's one of the greatest senses of joy and fulfillment and success. And so that's one of the reasons I started the, the book and this mission to help people, because I, I, I had no idea that fear was holding back that much happiness and fulfillment from me. Mm-hmm. And then the halo effect it had on the rest of my life. I, I was working half the hours, but my business took off. My relationship with my wife got, you know, way more authentic and much better. And, and you know, I was spending more time with my friends and, and doing things I like to do. And so it, it was really the realization that, that, you know, we can create our own life if we're courageous enough to accept our authentic self. Mm-hmm. So to summarize what I just heard is that to start taming fear, you've got to face it and then do that, which you fear and not just do it, but then like almost master it or, you, you, or at least go deeply into it. Yeah. You definitely have to dive deep into it. And, and for anyone who wants to go, you know, from success into a, into significance to a life that really matters, you've got to scare yourself every day because mm-hmm. in, in our country, we are, we've been taught to avoid fear. And then people start to get afraid of fear. They're not afraid of the thing that caused fear. They're, they're just afraid of those physiological reactions that happen when the amygdala tries to hijack. 
And so we make terrible decisions because they're all fear-based decisions. We let politicians and marketers manipulate us because we don't, Mm -hmm. we aren't comfortable with fear. We haven't dove in and are able to say, okay, I I get those butterflies. I get the the dry mouth or the the beating heart. I understand that. That's just fear. That that doesn't mean anything. It's, you know, it's, it's bullshit. I'm going to, I'm going to do what Commander Divine suggests I'm going to keep failing forward. I'm going to push into it, and mm-hmm. and I'm going to find more of it. Right. There's a difference between accepting a higher or or training yourself to accept higher and higher degrees of risk, challenging yourself to do things that are hard, and facing fears. Those 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 all have something in common, but they're slightly different, aren't they? I mean, I, I actually think Mark, I think risk and fear are two very different things. Yeah, well, let's and, talk and, about that. And so, and I get, I get shit a lot as a parent. Uh, I've got three amazing kids and, and a buddy of mine uh, is Joe DeSena, the CEO mm-hmm. of Spartan. Yeah, and, Joe and well. he, he and I have both been vilified in the press as Tom Brady just was yesterday for, for jumping off a, you know, a cliff into the water with his daughter. And mm-hmm. most people have no idea of the risk of the type of things we do, but because they're foreign, they seem scary. They, they put fear into people. So if you look at, at something like, you know, climbing Mont Blanc, you have the, the normal route on Mont Blanc has 300,000 people who do it every uh, eight years or something like that. And the number of people die is less than the number of people who die in car crashes in mm-hmm. France, you know, per capita. So it seems fearful to a lot of people, but the the risk, the the actuarial numbers are dramatically different, and I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is that that difference between risk and fear being that that movie that we play in our mind. Right, that's interesting. I can relate to this. I'm climbing uh, Mount Rainier next weekend mm. with a friend of mine, Brian Dickinson, and um, are you doing the you cle- the uh, Cleaver route? I don't know. Actually, he's leading the route. I'm just going to follow. Oh, right on. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great climb. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I don't experience any fear. But my when I told my parents about it, thinking that they, they would be excited or that would be kind of an interesting conversation, they got all, they seized up with fear. And yeah. um, it was pretty funny. Just from an example standpoint, I was like, holy cow, they're, they just locked up, right? Their neurobiology, like you said, just locked up in fear. And they're not even the one experiencing the incident or experiencing the event. So theirs is really more about a fear of loss, right? Yeah. If something happens to me. Absolutely. And you and wonder it, how many of their decisions are based upon fear of loss, right? And I think that's a, you know, you can categorize some of these big fears if you want to get, you know, um, look at it from kind of the emotional or therapeutic perspective, right? Oh, absolutely. Fear, fear of not being enough, fear of loss, fear of failure, Fear of abandonment. Fear of abandonment. Fear of success. Fear of success. Yeah, exactly. You see that a lot of people with my background, you know, blue collar kids from from inner cities, they get, you know, there's an upper limit set by our tribe, if you will. You know, I've, yes. my, my brother's a federal agent and, and uh, you know, we've got cops and priests and federal agents in our, right. in our, in our family. And if you're making a hundred grand a year, you know, and you've got a wife and you're playing on the softball team on the weekends, man, you, you, you've reached it. You've hit that upper limit. Right. So, so to be the one who makes, you know, $10 million and, and creates a great company or something like that, there's, there's fear there too. Yeah. 
Yeah. In my book, Steering Down the Wolf, I try to address some of these root fears that, you know, like you said, you had an incident, you know, the plane crash, which really framed your fear frontier. And that's powerful. But then you also made a, a comment about your staunch Catholic upbringing. I'll tell you a quick story. I was at recently at a um, emotional development kind of training called the Hoffman Process. It's really fascinating. Hmm. And one of the students there uh, was a Catholic priest for like 25 years from an Irish family in Boston of all places, of course. <laughs> What's and his, his name's either Sully, Sully, or Sully. <laughs> I won't say his name, right? Because that would be breaching confidentiality. You might but, be a um, cousin. He, right, exactly. You might know this guy. But for years, he said for years now, you know, and he didn't say how many, but like 10, 15 years, he knew that he didn't want to be a priest. In mm. fact, he acknowledged that he went in it because his family wanted him to go in. It was one of those, like you said, one of the acceptable paths for that tribe. Yeah. But he just, he just could not bring himself to leave for fear of letting his parents down or for fear of, of being seen as, you know, well, some, in some way, which wasn't going to please other people. And so he, he fear of rejection from the tribe, fear of rejection. Yeah, that's it yeah. from the tribe. And so he subjugated his own needs and wants and desires as a human being to the tribe and held himself back. And it took a long time, it took him until he's like in his mid forties before he could break away. Yeah. That's, and and how and common is that? I mean, like everybody who thinks, yeah, I got this, I'm squared away. I'm at the top of my game, even, you know, whatever, whatever you do, CEO of this or that, starting this company, that, you know, Olympic athlete, chances are there is some background of obviousness or fear frontier thing that is just causing you to miss something in your life that could really expose you to your authenticity, like you said. And I think that happens to way more people than who realize it. I agree. Yeah, we, you know, we have a subconscious database. Our, our mind can store as much data as about 500 brand new MacBook Pros, right? So we, <laughs> we, have, this, we have this massive hard drive in our brain. But the thing that's really fucked up is we didn't put most of the information in there. So mm -hmm. we didn't decide what language we speak. We didn't decide where we were born. We didn't right. decide, decide what our parents do for a living, but all of those, all that information, where we lived, how we got treated gets populated into this subconscious database and we use it for about 75% of our decision-making. Right. So, so uh, literally three quarters of the decisions we make, we do unconsciously. And then we right. use the conscientious bias to say, oh, no, no, I thought about that. But, but, you know, there's some great ways to prove the fact that that uh, and and it was only discovered from a scientific perspective. It was only proven in 2016 at MIT. Uh, this this great neuroscientist who I feature in my book named Anna Byler, she actually tracked mice. They give mice a squirt of quinine, which is bad, or they give them a, a bit of sugar, and they'd follow. They could literally watch through optogenetics. They could watch the neurons light up. And they saw that mice were just using one hemisphere for bad, the, the right hemisphere for bad, the left hemisphere for good. And, and this is exactly what we do. So when we mm -hmm. see, you know, someone coming down the street who looks different from us, you know, if, if I'm walking in New York or if I'm in Boston, I see a New York Yankees hat, I'm immediately going to make a subconscious judgment about a New York Yankees hat versus a Red Sox hat. Mm -hmm. and, and that and all of this is happening it's a subconscious level. So guys, you know, I've seen, I've worked with literally billionaires who super successful self-made guys and, and women, 
and they're they're completely unhappy because mm-hmm. the the things they're doing are trying to continue to build up those defense mechanisms as you call it, to to fight the what is it the moment moment of obviousness yeah background of obviousness that, that, yeah they're, so they're they're trying to defend against that they're trying to create right. these defense mechanisms instead of facing them and embracing them and and right. realizing why they do them so what are some of the ways that we can use fear or this new awareness of fear to help change, turn things around and to live our, you know, the life of our dreams? Mark, that's, that's a great question. And that's at the, the core of the, the work that I'm doing and, and my mission. And I firmly believe, number one, you've got to have the motivation. So mm-hmm. if my motivation was beyond trying to find self-esteem or, or self-confidence, I, I could have gotten an Olympic gold medal or I, I could have built a billion dollar company. But instead, it was, you know, it was trying to build up this cocoon. So first, you have to have the motivation in the right place. I think you know, if you do things for your family, for your friends, for your country, for the world as a better place, then you've got the right motivation. So are you suggesting that comes into your, your sense of purpose and mission in life? And that's Absolutely. what drives your motivation? Absolutely. Because yeah, you, you have a clear guiding compass. Right. If, if, you're, if your motivation is well-defined and clear-cut and it goes beyond material success or, mm-hmm. or you know, um, revenge or something like that, then it's, it's so easy to get through the difficult times, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Great. And, and the second thing you have to do, this is why we need to find more fear in our life. You know, people are saying, overcome your fear or, you know, work around your fear. That's complete bullshit. We have to find more fear so we can get comfortable with what happens to our body. So everybody has these things called fear tells. So if you scare mm-hmm. yourself, it's always going to be the same physiological reaction to, to different degrees of intensity. But you'll always have, you know, for me, butterflies in my stomach and one of my legs that, that my right leg starts to, to shake like Elvis and, and feel a little <laughs> weak, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's the, that's, those are my fear tells. And so when I get an email and my leg starts to shake or I start to feel that in my stomach, I know my amygdala is trying to make the decision. So I can stop. And I've, I've done something since the Olympic training days, and, and I call it a four by four. It's the same thing you call box breathing, right? Which mm-hmm. has been around for, for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And you guys learned it at sniper camp. I learned it, you know, learning visualization at the OTC. And it's, it's the first thing I do, right? When I feel my fear tells, I know that amygdala is trying to hijack and I, I got to say, stop, I'm not going to use any shortcuts. And I go through this platform I've created called the base methodology. And, mm. and, and in order to do that and understand what your decision-making process is, you've got to figure out when you were, let's say, younger than 10 or 12 years old, what impacted your life that created the, the fear frontier. So we can all mm-hmm. look back. And for me, it was that plane crash, that Delta. And that affected my defense mechanisms and it affected the way I acted. And so if we can do those two explorations around your fear tells and your fear frontier, then you can have a great understanding of how you react in the face of fear. I love that. Can I pause there and kind of add, add a little bit from our training? So absolutely, yeah. We, we believe that it's actually the first 21 years of your life that will define the, you know, the rest of your life. The first seven are the most crucial because that's when, you know, you're basically pure energy, especially the first few years of your life. But then you don't really have an intellect. You don't have the ability to discern. And so you're just absorbing energy. And that's when you're going to 
you know, either take on your parents' behavior or reject your parents' behavior or some, or deny, you know, your parents' behavior. And that's when, um, so those, those, that early, early childhood stuff are ridiculously powerful. That's why you take on your pattern, parents patterning and, or it gets all confused in, in, um, in your adult life, because if it's, you know, if there was rage or violence or anger, you're going to take that on or reject it. And so that becomes fear-based, uh, reactionary behavior. The next seven years up until we're like 14 or 15, now we're starting to get cognitive, but we're, we're, you know, our, our executive function is not there yet. You know, we're not able to make decisions that are really effective. So we usually confuse things, but there's this intellectual layer over the emotional layer. And that's when we begin to distort, you know, the energy that we take on. And so if you see something like a, a plane crash at 15 years old, you're going to cognize it, you're going to understand it, but the way you process it is going to be not effective, right? And so you end up attaching, like you said, emotional energy to it that is going to hold you back down the road. Yep. And then the, then the last, you know, seven year segment, you know, it's basically kind of a refinement, but this is where you begin to act out and begin to project and, and to become passive aggressive. And it starts to like your behavioral modifications based upon the first 14 years start to get greased, uh, you know, the grooves get greased and you become really uh, habituated in them. And then you're stuck, then you're done. Most people don't grow much beyond, you know, c- cognitively, psychologically, emotionally, unless you get therapy, unless you're on a, like a massive pursuit for personal development, yep. most growth kind of stops for most people right around the early twenties. Well, it, it, so. and, and that lines up. I mean, you're spot on because those are, those are, you know, really well aligned with the cycles of your brain development. Right. So the, the amygdala is fully developed at birth, right? So right. we have, so, so babies have that fight, flight, or free response. Then the hypothalamus starts to develop, which connects to the sympathetic nerve system. Mm-hmm. And that releases all these chemicals into your bloodstream that, you know, when you're now seven to 14, and then from 14 on, you're starting to develop the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And, and this thing, you know, which is the ama- most amazing part of our mind that we need to learn to use is called the, the working memory. And, mm-hmm. and, and so we, you know, those are, those are the phases for that. And how that happens and how that develops and what happens at those phases is what gets populated into that database I was talking to. So, so right. you're yeah, totally spot on. So, so as, you, as an adult, right, you can, you can do all the decision training and have all the mental models. But like you said, 75% of your decisions are going to be reacting, reactionary patterning, subconscious reactionary patterning based upon these t- first 21 years. And so you have to go back and kind of relive those. We call that recapitulation. You have to relive those years in a sense through your Im- imagery or through therapy, which is usually using imagery to, to go back and, f- you know, find what impacted you. What were the big patterns that your parents played out and that you absorbed or rejected or, you know, are now projecting? And what were the incidences like the plane crashes and the, you know, the getting humiliated or getting bullied? What were those things that caused you to think and react a certain way now, right? Isn't yeah. that, the, that's like the first part of it. And so what you're saying is that's what you mean by facing something you fear is find something that scares the shit out of you. Chances are you can then go back to an early childhood memory and find the root of it, right? Yeah. That's, and it's funny because, you know, I mentioned DeSena and, mm-hmm. and uh, Joe and I went to the Atacama desert to film this, you know, the, this thing for Spartan. We brought mm-hmm. one of the great psychologists who actually uh, is how you and I hooked up, Dr. L, 
Mm-hmm. And I sat there and I, I, as we're talking through them, I took them through the process of finding their frontier. I mean, literally in the course of an hour. And Dr. L is someone who has, you know, a PhD and, and has been studying psychology. She found her own fear frontier literally within an hour. Joe, you know, was telling us how he was so afraid of, of Jaws and he always thought of the movie Jaws as his fear frontier. He used to take a shower standing on a stool because <laughs> he was afraid that Jack was going to come, you know, up through up through the drain and bite his ass off, apparently. Now, now I know why I couldn't wait to get out of the ice bath when I interviewed him. There you go. <laughs> so, but oh, but literally, I mean, it doesn't take... You don't have to go to Nepal and, and sit up at the Tengbuche Monastery for five years to figure this stuff out, is my point, Mark. And you, right. you can spend a weekend at, at your, you know, at Unbeatable Mind. You can, you can spend a couple weekends, you know, there's a, a great woman up in Northern California named Diana Chapman who has this conscious leadership group. She does similar stuff. And, you know, you can find resources, but you have to be open to feeling that fear and then mm-hmm. once, once you can use it as fuel, that's we haven't even touched on that part. That's right. how you get superhuman performance, right? That, that's how when you start to use that fear cocktail to really make great decisions or great performance, that's, that's when things really change. Right. Yeah. And before we, I want to go there next, um, but I do want to kind of stress that fi- finding these um, fear-based patterns is one thing, but eradicating them you know, it's, to me, it seems like it's not a simple, it's not a simple thing, right? It's, it's an iterative process. It's, you know, you got to take a crawl, walk, run, you know, approach to it like you did with overcoming your fear of flying, right? So I don't want to give people the impression that this is an easy process, right? Well, the, the, only, the only caveat I'd, I'd say there, Commander, is it is, I think it's very simple, but it ain't easy at all. Yeah. It's, it's, really diff- right. it's really difficult. And, and so it takes work, right? It's, it's just, you know, it's no different than, you know, being a SEAL. I've, I, I had the pleasure of meeting and hanging out with Marcus Luttrell a few mm-hmm. years ago. And he said, he said, you know, before I went into BUDS, I knew I was never going to quit. He said, I made the decision. I would be happy to die, but I wasn't going to quit. So just having that mindset or a guy I used to row with who, who you know, I think Alden Mills, he went mm-hmm. through BUDS twice. And he had the mindset that, look, I, you know, broken leg, I'll start again. I'll do it when it's healed. And, and so I think it's, it's, you can make the conscious choice. We actually have two parts of our brain, the amygdala, which handles the, the fear response. But we also have a part that hasn't been researched nearly as much and isn't talked about as much called the SGACC. And, and that part handles the courage. And we can literally flip that switch by choice. And if you, if you flip that switch to courage, those neurons that fire together are going to start to wire together. So the more mm-hmm. you do it, you start to get more and more courageous. But it takes, it takes a hell of a lot of work to get there. Mm-hmm. Habituation, right? You got to habituate the courageous act to override the fear act, which is like, you know, when I say you have to, in order to um, develop courage or stoke courage, you have to f- starve the fear, Right, so you do the courageous thing, which then takes the energy away from the amygdala, and puts it into this SCACC or SDACC pathway. Yep. Exactly. That's that's so, that's right. what are some of the tools or processes you know that you've come up with that can help people you know kind of go down this path? So the the platform to transform fear into fuel. 
Yeah, and and that's it because you want to take advantage of that moment when when you feel the amygdala hijacking, everything unnecessary stops. So we stop mm-hmm. digestion, you know, we we stop reproduction, we stop feeling empathy for other people, and all of our energy and resources goes to our our physical performance and our mental performance. Mm-hmm. And, and this is exactly why in in life or death situations in a car crash, why everything seems to move in slow motion, right? Mm-hmm. We we have the ability to take in way more data consciously when your sympathetic nerve system is primed for survival. So we should use that. We should learn how to use that for optimal performance. And the way that you can do that is first, uh, so the, the platform I've created is called the BASE methodology, and that's B-A-S-E. And the B is pretty simple, and, and all your listeners know it is box breathing. I call it a four by four, and it's it's in for four, hold it for four, out for four, hold it out for four. Mm-hmm. And and what that's doing, and, and you've talked about it a lot, is it's changing your heartbeat from an erratic mm-hmm. heartbeat to a coherent heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And your, your beats per minute might still be 120 or 130, but if you look on an, on a, on an EKG machine, it's going to be much smoother and coherent as opposed to the, the jagged outline of a, of a mountain range or something. So the, the breathe is the first part. The A is assess the situation as if you were the producer. So, mm-hmm. so learn how to step back when you're in a fearful situation, you feel that amygdala taking over. And I always tell people that my, my boys who are uh, 12 and 13 love to play this video game where, where it's, they're driving a race car. And you can have two perspectives. You can be sitting behind the wheel and driving it, or you can hit the A button and you can pull out to be looking at it from a helicopter's perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we are with life, right? So when the amygdala takes over, we're the actor in the scene looking over the, the steering wheel. And so we lose all that perspective. If we can assess the situation from afar and look at the whole thing, most of the time we'll end up laughing because you're sitting in traffic thinking to yourself, why did I just give the bird to some blue-haired old lady who cut me off? Right. <laughs> right. So That's good. So that's a breathe, assess the situation. The S is an interesting one. It's actually two S's, but the the key component is to smile. Mm -hmm. And most people aren't aware that the 42 muscles in our face have a direct link to the sympathetic nerve system. So the old adage, grin and bear it. You know, you talk about things that have been around for a long time, but have never been proven. Mm -hmm. They did a study at Harvard about five years ago where they were showing scary pictures and videos to people in a fMRI, functional MRI machine. And rather than tell them to smile because they didn't want them to think about something good, they gave them a chopstick to hold in their teeth. So Mm. they'd have to flex those muscles in their face. And what they found was an 80% reduction in cortisol. Mm. Wow. Just from smiling. So it, it, it has a huge impact. The S is to shift your eyes, like you're watching a tennis match, and it's, uh, you know, we probably don't have the time to go into the details, but it's basically doing the same thing you do when you get into REM sleep. So most neuroscientists believe that we go through something called memory consolidation. So everything that happened during the day, we consolidate at night when we're in our REM stage into that hard drive I talked about. By so you're suggesting to do uh, self-EMDR. It's exactly right. Yeah. If you're, yeah. if your listeners know what EMDR is, it's very similar. So you yeah. do the EMDR while you're, you're smiling, shift your eyes back and forth while you're smiling and that mm. can help process cool. it. 
And it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. And, and some of the, by, by the way, it doesn't have to be the eyes they've proven. It can be uh, anything that's bilateral. Exactly. You know, this is why the, the, the tapping, you know, the, yep. that's another really good way to do it. You can tap left, right temple. You can tap left, right shoulder, left, right knee. You can do audio, you know, so you can do, um, I didn't yeah, know. About, those, I didn't know about the audio. I know about the tapping. Yeah, yeah, the, audio. So you can get one of those. Um, what do they call it? Biurnal beat things that clicks left, right, left, right. Which is like being yeah, in the yeah. car with my kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One on each side. Yeah, you know, so one's, one's playing one song. One's playing the other song. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Anyways, what's the E stand for again? So the the E is to eliminate shortcuts. So that whole process of what's called valence mm-hmm. and. You know, it's it's really the ability that the easy way to remember it is to replace judgment with curiosity. So, mm-hmm. you know, the shortcuts are us making judgments, really, at the end of the day. If you you walk into Starbucks and you see some dude who looks like he's been a victim of a of a drive by piercing, you know, you might say, oh, what a freak. Because you came from a, you know, <laughs> drive by piercing. You, by the way. I'm just you might be a, the guy who comes from a military background and, you know, everyone in the family was high and tight, nice, fresh mm-hmm. shirts. And so your database says that. Now, if you were to say all of a sudden, okay, I'm going to replace that judgment with curiosity, what can I think that is great about this guy? What's amazing? And, and the first thing is, well, he must have a hell of a pain threshold to be able to do that. <laughs> I couldn't put one right. of those things through my eye. Or, uh, you know, or he doesn't care what other people think about him because, you know, he's expressed himself, however. So eliminating the shortcuts and, and all this, you know, the, the base methodology is, is really a couple chapters in the book. And some of the stuff I'm doing, you know, with the, these neuroscientists has just been, I mean, it's literally fascinating. I, I've had to sit after interviewing guys. There's, there's one guy in, um, University College, Cambridge, named Carl Friston, who who literally is cited more times than Einstein in scientific papers, <laughs> and he is dude is smarter than Einstein. Every time I talk to him, I you know I've got a couple hours of interviews. I literally sit on the couch for about two days, replaying sentence by sentence, so I can I can figure out what he's trying to talk, you know, what he's trying to say, and distill it down to something I can put in the book that people can understand and use. But it's, mm. it's those type of insights that led to, to this platform that I hope will dramatically change a lot of people's lives. Oh, that sounds terrific. The base platform. The base platform, cool. yeah. Uh, tell us about, we got to wrap up pretty soon here, but a couple more questions. This is so fascinating. What do you, what's your morning routine look like? How do you kind of get ready to win the day? You know, this is the terminology we use. We say it's really important to have a powerful morning routine so that you can win in your mind and body and spirit before you step into the battle. Dude, I, I'm just like Thomas Jefferson. So I went to UVA uh, for grad school and I think you've you got to have a couple hours of exercise every day. And so mm-hmm. my morning routine starts out the same every morning. I do a version of Tumo breathing. So it's a it's a little mm-hmm. bit different than kind of the Wim Hof methodology that most mm-hmm. people do mm-hmm. because I add the what you're I'm sure familiar with the breath of fire from the mm-hmm. practice. Yep. So I do about 10 yeah, minutes. That's part of my morning routine as well. The, the so. breath of fire. Oh, good. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I do the breathing exercises for about 15 minutes. I do 15 minutes of meditation and then okay. I, I take the next hour. And if there's anything I'm trying to learn or create, I do it then because your neurons have all been healed while you sleep. So the ability Mm -hmm. to absorb a language or the ability to to pick up a new skill set is highest when you wake up in the morning. 
Mm-hmm. After I get through with the Tumo breathing, I'll do something that requires a heavy learning component. So because we're mm-hmm. in France, I'll spend some time learning French. If I'm getting ready for a, a documentary or TV show, I'll, I'll try and learn some lines. But your neurons are fully repaired when you wake up in the morning if you get a good night's sleep and you go through all the different stages, particularly uh, you know an hour or so of deep sleep. So it's the best mm-hmm. time to learn. It's also the best time to create. Then I nice. um, uh, then I'll do my first workout of the day, and uh, which is which is usually something aerobic. So it kind of eases my body into it. And then uh, cold shower. So that's, that's nice. my morning routine. Yeah. I love that. It's this, uh, it's it, it, it works. It's super effective. Yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. what do you do after your breathing? If you if you can give me the insight on yours. Sure. Yeah. So I wake up and I start box breathing and then I do some journaling. So that's the positive. So first off, I drink a glass of fresh water and I begin a gratitude practice and then I begin my box breathing. And then I will, after the box breathing, I'll go into a a short meditation. You know, I used to do 45 minute long meditations, but I I just have gotten to where I don't have the time. And also have gotten uh, effective enough where I, I can do a series of like six or seven, three to five minute meditations throughout the day. And I find that I get more impact out of it. So I save time in my morning routine. Nice. So short meditation, uh, I check in with my ethos. So all this is like, takes me, you know, about a, 20 minutes to a half hour. So I check in with my ethos, which is where I look at my, reflect upon my purpose and my, um, my mission. And then I feel into the vision that I have for my future. Right, becoming the kind of person that's worthy of fulfilling my mission. I love that. Um, all of that is kind of a static practice, meaning I'm either sitting in bed or sitting on my my meditation bench. Yeah. Then I go into um, my more deep breathing practice. So I do um, I do alternate nostril, and then I do breath of fire, and then I do kind of our version of Wim Hof, which we call warrior breathing. Which is main difference is through the nostrils, and I we have both an inhale and an exhale hold. So I do three sets of that. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go into my movement practice. So that's either twice a week I study a keto for two hours hmm. or the other days that three times a week I do an hour of yoga, hmm. right? Either on my own or, or just the local yoga studio, core power yoga studio. And that's not, none of those I consider to be my workout. So that's basically my morning ritual. Yeah. And then later on in the day, I'll get my functional fitness workout in usually at the gym. And then in the evening, I like to do something else as well, like a walk on the beach, you know, something kind of wind down-ish. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, um, but you asked about the morning ritual. The point here for everyone listening is, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Pat and I are a little, seem a little extreme, but the power of doing this, the, the, the psychological balance, the physiological control, the, the energy management, the positivity and optimism and sense of being in control that it brings. And also, you know, the constant refinement of the quality of your thinking right? To, to lead to better decisions, it saves so much time, both in choices of what to do and avoidance of the things that slow us down in life. Well, Would you agree, A couple other points I'd add in there, Commander. Number one mm-hmm. is that it greatly increases your ability to connect with that, that part of your brain, the SGACC. So the, nice. the courage right. part of your brain, it also sets your day up on your terms. So one of the right. things, when I speak a lot, I, I ask people who ra- who to raise your hand if you pick up your phone first thing in the morning. Mm, if you're picking yeah, up your yeah. phone first thing in the morning, you're living your life based on someone else's agenda. Right. Because you're responding to things. If you see something now, it's it's affecting you 
mentally and, and physiologically because you you see an email from your boss or from your investor or whatever. So I don't even I don't even get to near the computer or the phone for the first really two hours in the morning. The, nice. the other thing you mentioned was a gratitude practice, which we do. I don't do it in the morning, but we do every night at dinner. So we go around nice. the dinner table with the kids. And no matter how bad your day is, you have to find something just from today that you're thankful for. And so it's a, you know, it's really a great way to bring a gratitude practice in the family. And one thing we didn't mention in the podcast, I'm sure you got a lot of listeners who are parents out there, all of this stuff applies. And and in fact, some of it more, as we talked about the development, all of this applies to your kids. And Mm -hmm. Especially (laughs) because they're the generation that's going to change the world. And and we have a huge lack of of coming of age opportunities. You know, there's Mm -hmm. schools taking out gym class and and removing the the rope. And my my kids Mm -hmm. were just up uh, for the death race. And and there was a little small version of uh, of the death race for the for kids death race. And and they all loved it. And, you know, they're all proud Mm -hmm. of themselves and, and they worked hard. And so all of these practices can apply to kids. And, and I have my kids doing breathing every morning as well. And it just, it just sets them up for a, for a great day. That's awesome. I agree hundred percent. You know, you, your whole work is about fear and you know how much fear r- rules the world because it's infused into our media and politics and, Mark, you know, it's just pr- yep. persistent, yep. but are you optimistic uh, for the future? And do you see a future where, you know, we can be more peaceful as a hum- you know, as humanity? I, I definitely see our world changing, and and I, I would say from the perspective of, you know, mindfulness, I think they're going to be there. There's probably two camps that are going to develop. One is is going to be a really refined, mindful people like you, Mark, who you know may have a warrior's training and background, but have a very peaceful mindset because. That you know, Gandhi said it best that hate isn't the enemy; it's fear. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so people are afraid. And, and the reason we can get the politicians in that we have today is they're totally feeding on this fear frenzy. Mm-hmm. And the more we can become immune to that, the more we can become courageous in our decision making. The more parents can not be concerned whether or not other parents think they're being good parents and just do what they think is right for their kids, the mm-hmm. more that, that the, those people will lose their grip on power. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think having a mindful society, having a society with the right motivation, and if people can learn fear and, and learn to get comfortable with fear, then it can't be used against you. So that's, that's my mission is to teach millions of people to find more fear and, and get comfortable with it. And I think that helps lead to world peace for sure. Yeah, I agree. Well, we'll work together on that. Amy, Our mission is to uh, train and integrate 100 million people to become world-centric warriors and leaders, which encompasses you know much of what we talked about today, overcoming fear by staring down the fear wolf, you know, accessing greater potential by being mindful and, and um, balancing the body, mind, and spirit, and, and aligning with uh, your unique purpose in the world and then going out and crushing it but doing it in a way that's beneficial for all of humanity and not just your small ego or your ethnocentric tribe. And I think it's going to take a generation, you know? Yeah, I I think so as well. So I think our, our kids are, um, you know, are the hope. And if we're, if we're figuring out and working all the kinks out, then they're going to be the lucky ones who benefit from it. Yeah. 
Well, we all will. Yeah, <laughs> and sure, Mother Earth. Sure, sure. <laughs> Patrick, you're awesome. I can't wait to meet you in person and you know, do some work together maybe. So let's consider those ideas. Um, how to, how do we support each other? Definitely, uh, everyone listening, uh, go pre-order his book. Uh, assuming this podcast comes out before you said October, the book is coming no, out. The book doesn't come out till December. Same thing. Uh, or December. Littlefield, my, my publisher is like yours that manuscript was due in April and it comes out in December. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mine was due in, uh, May and it comes out in March of 2020. Yeah. But, but Hey, that's the way it is. It gives us a long time to talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck with that. Um, I will definitely look forward to reading it and, uh, providing you some, you know, a blurb or a testimonial. Awesome. And let's, let's get together again and talk, talk some more and maybe do some work together. Commander Divine, I would greatly look forward to it. And I appreciate you and your listeners taking time to listen to me. I know, like you said, they've got a lot of choices. So uh, I hope it was yeah. beneficial. Yeah, I think it was. And I'm sure they'll agree. So awesome. yeah. Thank you. All right, folks, Patrick Sweeney, check out his book, Fear as Fuel. Hey, Patrick, what's your, do you have a website and stuff like that? Yeah, website is pjsweeney.com or fearisfuel.com, either one. And then on okay. uh, Twitter at PJ Sweeney and Instagram, The Fear Guru. The Fear Guru. Also, and then Sweeney have an E at the end, right? E-Y? E-E-N-E-Y, that's right. S-W-E-E-N-E-Y. And it's fear as fuel or fear is fuel? Fear is fuel. Fear is fuel. I had that wrong in my notes. Okay, fear is fuel. I love it. Awesome. All right, folks, that's it. Um, thanks for your time today. Go check out Patrick's works. Very important and completely in alignment with what we do here at Unveil Mind. And um, begin to stare down your wolf of fear. It's really important work. And uh, if you're sitting here listening to this thinking, well, I don't have uh, any of that, then maybe pull out the mirror and look again because it's there. Till next time, train hard, stay focused, and cultivate that unbeatable mind. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Lock and load, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T.